say in the early hours of morning when you listen to birds starting to sing as the light rises you might think that you are listening to nature um, I'd say that that's not nature um, in the summer you know, if you stay in a room by the beach and you hear the waves crashing against the shore again you might think that that is the sound of nature but it's not nature what it is is what the inside of the human head sounds like the echo of subjectivity we don't know what nature sounds like or looks like or, or anything because to us nature is completely inaccessible it resides outside of our capacity to comprehend it we can't know nature because we're like a theatre with no access to the backstage you can't get through the curtains um, there's only the illuminated playing area I think if you draw a circle within a circle human understanding is the inner circle there, the outer circle is a wall and nature resides outside of that wall nestling against it and cradling us inside we know nature exists in a similar way that you think about how like, iron filings invisibly fan out around a magnetic field there is a negative space that applies pressure to our reason that tells us that even though we cannot hear birds with anything other than our human perceptions we know that birds must exist within the democracy of objects outside of our language and our human all too human subjectivity to talk of nature is to talk of some absolute universal outside of our humanity even when we point a microscope or a telescope at nature we're only ever pointing those tools at ourselves they're mirrors reflecting our own symbols and ideas back at us from the vantage point of a material world we cannot step outside of ourselves to perceive we cannot know nature because we cannot know nature it is perfect it is uncorrupted by our human thoughts and interventions to say that it is perfect is to say that it is absolute it doesn't make mistakes because it can't make mistakes I think this turns into a more difficult idea for us to go along with than we might otherwise first think we might readily say that the, the ocean can't make a mistake because it, it just is it is an absolute you know what would an incorrect wave even look like although we might readily suggest perhaps that say some trees do not grow into their full potential because of negative environmental conditions or, or whatnot and I'd say we're even more apt to call out the correctness or incorrectness of nature the closer that it approaches to our human biology a dog born with three legs instead of four must be incorrect because of all the things we know of symmetry of our understanding of 
genetics, we are pattern-seeking machines, and because of that we have established models of correct and incorrect nature, and not just on a physical front, um, I mean there appear to be correct and incorrect ways of thinking and behaving as well. Sometimes we say that nature is cruel, uh, that nature is unfair, um, particularly when it delivers babies and children we consider as incorrect. We call nature the most despicable force in the universe. But you know, should we not be calling out here our, our own human subjectivity? Were it not for the stories we tell ourselves about geometry, the symmetries we seek, the lines of time that should maintain particular lengths, the frames we place morality into, the trajectories of a good life, you know, were it not for those things, we'd have no reason to otherwise point the finger at, at, at nature. However, in the same way that we can't know nature, we also can't live without our stories. If we don't have stories, then we reject the will to live. Um, you know, we reject the, the capacity to have meaning in subjectivity. We, we die like, you know, God died when religion lost its stories. Every story we tell is a story about nature. And even though they are really stories about ourselves and never actually about nature, uh, they keep us alive all the same. I'll tell you some of the stories that I tell myself as I walk my baby around the, uh, the streets of a morning. I tell myself that I'm going to live forever, for a while. Another story is about how I must surely have known enough about the world in order to bring a new little life into this place. I tell myself a story about how his life will be filled with more joy than sorrow, so long as I have any say in the matter. There are also those stories we're told by our parents about how love should feel, by talking animals about how slow and steady will win the race, by the news about how it feels to be on the right side of history, and by our schools about what success looks like socially, intellectually, and economically. It takes a lot of stories being told and retold all the time in order to keep everybody alive. At certain times in our life, particularly during periods of intense change and personal reflection, we look at the old stories and think, do we need new stories? Should we be listening out or creating new meaning? But I think the one constant that is always there is that a story must exist. It's, it's not possible to go on without a story. Our subjectivity requires stories like lungs require oxygen. The stories that stay around the longest are always the ones that are easiest to understand. They make the most immediate sense to us on a gut level because they mirror the shape of the gut of nature, of the invisible, incomprehensible pressure of nature cradling us and nestling up against the wall that is the limit of our human comprehension. 
the closest we can get, I think, to getting a sense of nature's presence is through reflecting on the shape of the stories that keep us alive. Of course, our most readily accessed stories are the ones told to us by our inaccessible nature. This doesn't mean that the most readily told and understood gut-level stories are the best ones for us. Um, the easiest things really are. The, the best things for us often make us sweat. And if we're going to share and understand new stories about the apparent correctness or incorrectness of nature as it relates to our babies, our children, then we're really going to have to sweat as we put our shoulder to the, the wheel of civilization. Civilization flows like our most retold stories because civilization is our most retold story according to the path of least restriction. Like water flowing down a mountainside, civilization takes the most direct path towards its end towards the, the discharge of its energy in service of how readily it, it can multiply. Civilization moves in whatever is the most efficient direction to multiply people and economy. And the sort of people that are the most economical to this process are the people that are the most alike, you know, the, the average human. A brick wall is easiest to build when all of the bricks are uniform and so too does civilization most progress towards its goals when the people that reside within it fall within a very particular statistical average. You think about the, the buildings in our cities and it's not too cynical to say that they are built with the cheapest materials possible to house the greatest number of people that will generate the maximum amount of value. These buildings, these cities require a human template that most readily conforms to those dimensions and not only physically but certainly socially, philosophically. And so a question that comes up all the time with regards to inclusion and diversity is what is the value in supporting lives that fall outside of that average? What is the value in supporting diversity in an inclusive manner if civilization most readily flows according to the path of, of least restriction, um, you know, according to very particular averages? And perhaps it depends on what story will flow most readily down our moral narrative mountainsides. For example, we might most be able to believe in the story of civilization if we believe we are kind and not just mechanical. Or we might tell a story about how our civilization will be even more efficient if we can utilize everybody's strengths. That's often what we do in special education. We say, if you learn teaching practices that are designed to the edges of the diversity of your classroom, you'll be providing yourself with you know, teaching strategies that will benefit every student you work with. 
but for me sometimes I don't want a strategic hook <laughs> to have to be the underlying foundation upon the reason that we would want to include everybody or want to value everybody in, in equal measure I just want people to believe in a story that allows for every baby born to be accepted as a perfect product of a nature that we cannot fathom um, that we should not hold up against our statistical averages and patterns and geometries of what we think correct nature looks like within the framework of a successful civilization and for each of these perfect products of nature to be just cared for you know, and loved unconditionally across their entire lives which is a long way of saying that you know every human should be valued authentically as much as any other If this runs contrary <laughs> to how civilization wants to d discharge its energy, um, then so be it. You know, societies, communities, schools, families. I, I don't care for the idea of the the group, the many. I, I only care about the individual, the value of of each individual in all of the diversity. The group is most always wrong. They're consistently late to the truth. Only the individual has the agility to be able to reason what is what is most correct for a given moment. I don't believe that the momentum of civilization should be our human goal, but rather we should focus on the humble, dignified freedom of, of each individual within that civilization. What's that... Um, Latin phrase that Schopenhauer used. Um, certainly not going to be able to pronounce it. Vegeat uh, veritas et periat mundus. Let truth prosper though the world perish. You know, and if it doesn't perish, then that's fine too. Humble freedom is a fairly good term for expressing what all, all of this is gesturing towards. The humble freedom to accept nature as an inaccessible idea beyond correctness or incorrectness, but also critically the humble freedom to not feel responsible for making perfect choices out of this imperfect capacity. There is something very subtle to be said here about the value of something like quietism um, you know, the, the idea of, of accepting things as they are without explicitly seeking to, to make active change I mean, I'd go further and say that we cannot measurably change many things possibly anything um, even if we do seek action not in the way that we can be sure that we're having an impact in in the right direction which parent you know which teacher can say with certainty that the children that they cared for turned out a certain way for better or worse because of their intervention I'm, I'm not talking about extraordinary acts of trauma or salvation here but 
rather the idea that if we are going to consider that the result, the manifestation of the life of the child is a result of our pedagogical influence, I think we're, we're overstating things. I mean, one of my refrains is that nature is perfect, but nurture is not. In my life I've known three Michaels. Uh, two of them were mates that I went through school with and one was a student that I taught. Uh, the two friends that I went to school with, uh, they both excelled socially and academically. You know, they were nice young lads and very much on the path to post-school prosperity. The Michael that I taught, however, you know, had seemingly every card stacked up against him. According to his lengthy uh, diagnostic record, uh, he was diagnosed as autistic, had a significant in intellectual disability, uh, significant communication and mental health needs. Always remember how much he loved pulling machines apart. Where, where are those three Michaels now? The two Michaels who are my mates, you know, with all their educational successes behind them, They've both struggled to find stable careers. Uh, one of them has experienced very complicated relationship challenges that has caused a great deal of grief for the past 15 years. You know, the other has struggled by not finding any significant personal relationships in his life. Um, and you know, both struggle now with fairly significant mental health needs and so on. Um, but the Michael that I taught the one with his cards seemingly stacked up against him by nature. For the past half decade he's been working in an electronics workshop, fixing up broken machines brought to him. He says he loves heading into work each day, he's got a really great network of friends around him and his family told me only recently that his, his quality of life you know, has never been higher. He wakes up and looks forward to the coming day. So, you know, what are we to think of such unpredictable narratives of trajectories that time and time again show us that we've got no capacity to read the future as much as our patent-seeking capacities would want to inspire us with the confidence that, that we, we do? Um, we're very poor at looking into the future. The, the thing that I keep coming back to is that we must face this um, with the utmost humble modesty and the, the freedom to not be weighed down by the choices before us when we are raising teaching the the young people that nature has presented before us as a special educator there have been many days in which it seemed incredibly earnestly important to take a really firm stand on a particular choice regarding the lives of the young people that I was employed to support. It makes me think of a phrase um, coined by the ecologist Aldo Leopold that seems pertinent here, not least because it relates to biodiversity and you, know, you think of the inherent connections between the value of biodiversity and neurodiversity and and the phrase uh, that he came up with is uh, to think like a mountain 
Leopold noticed that uh, wolves in, in his area were being hunted um, to, to extinction and what that did was, is, was it allowed the, the deers on the mountain to live without risk, without fear um, and they enjoyed the spoils of that. They ate all the grass, all the bushes until there was no grass left and no bushes left and all the deer died and the idea of to think like a mountain was to reinforce this idea of as as humans we've got like a real keyhole very restricted view on um, the the complicated ecosystem relationships that that come into play on something like a mountain we, we think you take away the wolves that's going to let the deers you run free it's going to, to help other things take place but you don't recognize the the immense network of other things that you are impacting as a result of that so to, to think like a mountain is to is to not think like a human <laughs> is to go beyond our capacity to always feel like we know that if we make a change here it's going to make a change here so what is the lesson to take away from that and the lesson is that we are not great judges of the results of our actions of the knock-on effects of causality you know within the complicated chaotic ecosystems in which we we live nature might be perfect but but we're certainly not it makes me think too of um of a joke uh about a church minister and a gardener and the minister is walking along the road and he comes upon this beautiful garden. It's got beautiful flowers everywhere. They're immaculately presented, engineered in these structured plots. Um, it's, just, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And the minister says to the gardener, what an absolute testament to the glory of God, this, this beautiful display of nature is and the gardener looks up and he says oh oh no you, you should have seen this place when it was left up to God but you know, is there not is there not a punchline reversal here so certainly the intention of the joke is to say that left to its own devices left to to God nature is an unsightly unwieldy tangle of, of roots and weeds and other incorrect things in a garden but with human intervention we can tend and correct things and make it make it beautiful and make it cultured make it a, a, a reflection of of our civilization turn it into civilization but what I'd say is that before the gardener came along, nature there was neither correct nor incorrect. It, it was beyond human subjectivity, beyond language, beyond judgment. The, the presence of the gardener is, is the birth of, of subjectivity and that need to give nature a story and to turn it into civilization.
so what to do um, not just pedagogically but you know what what to do in terms of of our approach to care our approach to nurture of of youth of of young nature my son is 14 months old and my daughter is 11 years old and I've already experienced many minutes for which there was time for decisions and revisions that a minute would and possibly should reverse if such a thing were possible. But my consideration, my humble freedom as a parent and as a special educator is to recognise that so long as my intentions are authentic, so long as I'm considering the stories that rise out of our inability to know nature and I'm leaning into what feels right for the individual, for my son, for my daughter, my students, on their terms, not within the scope of what appears suitable to civilization, you know, thinking like a mountain, thinking of the three Michaels, then I can feel like I'm making an ethical choice, regardless of the outcomes. An ethical choice in the face of an inaccessible nature. What else is there to do? Um, you know, the garden needs to be tended, but there are many variations on the garden that haven't been considered yet. Nature is perfect, but, but we don't need to be.